if you want to set up a tuning room in your ski house or at your home or in your garage, uh, there's a few items that you're going to need. A solution for vice, something to hold the skis well, less for the application of the wax and more for the scraping. scraping. Because something has to hold the skis from sliding when it's on the table. Makes sense. Um, a good iron, a good actual ski waxing iron that will maintain temperature consistently and it'll last you a long time. And then a collection of wax that will cover the temperature ranges you're sure. going to be skiing in. And yep. That's Mike Aker, an independent sales agent for Swix, a Norwegian ski wax company. In this episode, we talk to Mike and get the lowdown on almost everything there is to know about ski tuning. He explains the science behind skis gliding on snow and how the right wax and application plays an important role. We then learn about base bevels, base relief, and structures before getting the scoop on how to set up a home tuning bench. I'm Justin Cash, and this is the Killington Download. All right, Killington Download listeners, we are making a call to the bullpen. Crystal Clary is not with us this week, but we have Stephanie Backus, Creative Service Manager for Killington and Pico. Stephanie is new to Killington. Where did we find you? Where did you come from? Well, I found Killington, I guess, technically. Uh, I came from upstate New York. I worked at Gore Mountain. And then before that, I was actually out in Colorado at Copper. So I um, am now, I'm new to Vermont and new to Killington. What did you do out at uh, Copper and uh, across the way at Gore? I did a little bit of everything from marketing to PR, you know, photo, video, design, you name it, I did a little bit of it. A jack of all trades. Yes. I feel in this industry, you kind of have to be. So you're going to be taking over this segment of the podcast for the next couple of episodes, give or take? Yes. Yep. So I will give you the update. All right. All right. Well, we're <laughs> we're very happy to have you here. First off, what a march. I mean, it doesn't get any better snow-wise. It doesn't. I had a powder day a couple of Wednesdays ago that uh, legendary, top top five, maybe top 10, uh, hard to count, but I've been here a while and it was, it was just absolutely epic. What a March to remember. Um, and we have a lot of exciting events coming up. Let's start with the Red Bull slide in tour. Sure. So yeah, I mean, spring is synonymous for uh, exciting events here at Killington, right? So the Red Bull slide in tour is basically um, a few Red Bull athletes will be coming in and riding across the mountain. Everyone is welcome to join these athletes and hit up all of our terrain parks and just have some fun. Do we know any specific names? We do. We've got X Games gold medalist Zeb Powell. Zeb Powell. Sure. He's uh, I, I've been out riding the Peace Park at times and he's just here enjoying it. I love it. Does yeah. he live locally? I think he went to Stratton Mountain School. Um, I don't know where he lives locally. I think he's still on the East Coast, though. Okay, great. I know that this tour expanded west as well, so that's really exciting. Um, but we also have X Games uh, bronze medalist Jesse Augustin. Okay. Um, and then also we've got Maggie Leon, uh, um, Grace Warner, Brantley Mullins, and a few other special guests that we don't know of yet. Well, that's that's very exciting. It's always fun to get out and ride with the professionals. Uh, the the ease and grace that they they just and and the way they approach the mountain the way they see the features uh, is just it's just a blast to blast to watch they really do they make it look so easy and then you try to go out there and do it yourself and you you wreck yourself that, that's it, that's what it is it's the ease of what they do and then you're like man I, I can do that and then you're like maybe maybe I can and then but, you go home with your uh, tail between your legs yeah. with bruises all over without without a doubt especially for this old guy on the same weekend. Over at Bear, legendary, BMMC. It's the Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge coming back April 1st. It's a Saturday, one-day event this year? It is a one-day event, yes. April 1st, uh, what, you know, the event that everyone knows and loves is coming back uh, over on Bear Mountain. We'll have 150 competitors, which is now full, um, but we'll have the pre-party the night before at Sushi Yoshi, and then the events kick off at 10 a.m. on Saturday and then run basically through the day. We'll have some live music, qualifiers, finals, a barbecue on the deck. I mean, it's going to be a great day. Off air, you told me this will be your first Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge. It will. And I have seen plenty of photos and videos and I am very excited to attend. You are going to have a blast. Uh, you know, get get a good night's sleep. Maybe Actually, no, no, don't get a good night's sleep. Just go right into it. Uh, enjoy every little bit of it. It's an awesome event. Um, People come out from all over, bump skiers, anybody that, you know, you're skiing Killington on Saturday, 
take a rundown, you know, dream maker, and then pop in and check out the scene. It's, it's a blast. And the athletes, some of the best bump skiers in the world, I'm sure there'll be some, uh, probably Olympians, past Olympians, current Olympians, uh, in attendance. That's always fun. Um, Yep. And we'll have Hannah Sore there too, cheering everybody on. She will be. She will be there. Right. She won't be competing, but she will be there. Will she be judging? She's not. She's not judging. She's judging the pond scam later in the Okay, month. okay. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a minute. And then uh, we have the Woodward Wind Down Jam session. Yeah, so that is kind of similar to the Red Bull Slide-In Tour uh, without the athletes, but it'll be kind of on in the Peace Park. We'll do just a jam session for anybody who wants to come out. And it's just sort of a a feel-good, you know, spring riding session to kind of close out, um, you know, our our train parks. Sure. Uh, Put you on the spot. Favorite trail of Killington since you've been here? That is a very good question. I mean, I've been loving Outer Limits. Speaking of the Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge. Classic, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've made my way. It's It's been funny. It's I've taken to the mountain by myself and made my way over, my way, my, made my way back. And one of the ways I actually <laughs> made my way down is Bear Cub all the way down to Sunrise. Mm-hmm. And I've accidentally shown up at Sunrise and thought to myself, how did I get here? I'm so confused. Um, but it's been really great because we've been almost hundred percent open, especially since this last snow. So I've been able, you know, I've been able to explore a lot of the mountain that I hadn't been before. And for everybody else too, it's a great opportunity to just get to parts of the mountain that you may have not gotten to. When Killington is hundred percent open wall to wall, it's just the best places like uh, roundabout glades and, and bear cub down to sunrise. It's, 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 it's the biggest resort in the East and it's, it's the best in my humble opinion. Stephanie, it's been great to get to know you a little bit. We look forward to hearing from you in future episodes. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to uh, future podcasts. Killington download listeners on this episode, we're talking tuning. We're going to learn about bevels and edges and structures and summarizing, and we're going to learn about wax and all this good stuff. And we're going to learn it from Mike Aker. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Mike, you grew up in Rutland, Vermont, correct? Correct. And I'm guessing skiing at Pico? Yes. My whole family, my mom and dad were avid skiers. And uh, so as kids, they brought us to the mountain rather than having to pay for childcare. So we would go ski as a family at a mountain that obviously you can find the bot. You can't get lost. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was the nice thing about growing up skiing at Pico. So mom was a weekend ski instructor. Her full-time job was a nurse. Um, she's retired now. And my dad worked for Central Vermont Public Service, the power company yep. and uh on the weekends he would patrol on the otter ski patrol at pico so what was that one of the first ski patrols in the state i believe it was one of the first ski patrols in the country it was one yep. of the first sanctioned national ski patrol organizations in the country so uh it, there's a lot of history at pico with both the ski patrol and the pico ski club and and also the the early days of the vermont alpine racing association well, so sure um, so Pico has been home since I was a kid, even though I've lived other places and, and have now moved back. But, uh, so the, the, the ski patrol sounds fascinating. Were, were you ever involved in it? Yes. So when I was a little kid, I, I took lessons from mom when she was the ski instructor. And then I realized that in the race program, there's a lot of training and a lot of drills and a lot of standing around at, at certain ages. And some of my other friends that were not in the ski racing program, but they were on the patrol, they seemed like they were always free skiing. So I joined the junior ski patrol, which was kind of an apprentice program and learned how to run toboggans and learned about uh, first aid. And the main thing about the the patrol that was really appealing is that you get to cut lines on busy days. So <laughs> at the youngest age, when it was really busy, the big cross on the back and the patrol pack let us cut lines and, and ski more vertical in the same amount of time. So it was all about the skiing. It was a lot of it was about the skiing. What, what was your favorite part about growing up at Pico? The main thing about Pico is the community and the, the lifelong passion for the sport that you build when you're around other people with like interests. So uh, I met a lot of my best friends that I'm still really close with today, and I also built a skill set and a network, a network of friends um, that has helped move me into my professional life today. So that, that perfect segue. What is your professional life? What What are you doing with your time now? So I am an independent sales agent, um, and I'm part of a three person sales agency. We represent uh, Solomon and Swix for the New England sales territory. 
So we service and sell all the products uh, that you would see in a retail shop or a resort with either of those brands uh, for all of New England. So Swix, it's a ski wax company, but it's it's probably a little bit more. What is what is Swix? So Swix is a Norwegian brand. Um, it's owned by the parent company called Brav, uh, which they own several different brands, but Swix is the flagship brand. And it really started with ski wax and technical tuning materials and has evolved into uh, very high level carbon fiber fabrication, which is where they get their ski pole expertise from, as well as soft goods. So there is a large following uh, for Swix apparel. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the more notable visible items that's a Swix product is the hats that you might have seen in the Killington World Cup parade when the kids all march in at the first yep. day of the race. Yep. So that uh, that custom hat with the Vera logo and the Swix and the Killington World Cup uh, is a product that we've been doing uh, since the first year of the Killington World Cup. So I think I might have one in the back of my car. Honest to God, I have a laundry basket with all my gear. I think I have one down the bottom. So Swix isn't just uh, uh, ski wax. It's it's all the tune. It's all the equipment that you need to tune. Correct. Hard goods and soft goods. And on the hard goods, what they consider hard goods are uh, tuning tools, waxes. Um, and some of the other alpine ski poles, for instance, are a hard good. And then soft goods are all the apparel lines. So they are segmented into hard and soft goods. But on the tuning side of things, the evolution of ski wax has been one of those things that is probably the most technical thing in the sport. But a lot of people don't know that much about it. The, uh, the science of a ski sliding on the snow is a lot more complicated than just slapping it down on the snow and gliding. And that's why we're here talking to you. I mean, let's let's start right there. Let's talk about the science of ski wax. You know, when I was growing up, you maybe had like a blue bar for whatever temperature and a green bar for whatever temperature and you'd melt it on and you scrape it off and off you went. But I got to imagine these days there's a lot more to it. Well, parts of it are still that simple, um, but some of the technology that has allowed the materials to evolve to work better uh, have taken some time to develop. So the the ski gliding on the snow really is uh, the science of friction. So the ski, honest, when you have your skis and you start down the hill, you're not actually gliding on frozen snow. A thin layer of water builds between the ski and the snow, and the ski is gliding on that thin layer of water. So depending on how much suction or how much uh, stiction you have between the snow and the ski, that thin layer of water, uh, that determines how easily or how hard it is for a ski to glide. So that's fascinating. You're saying that the weight of a person on a ski or snowboard, and as it glides, the friction creates, I mean, sometimes I got to imagine that layer of water um, is like like millimeters thin, like multi, you know, fraction, fractions of an inch thin, right? Yes, actually, optimally, it's as thin as possible. And that's why the warmer the snow, if you've ever skied in the springtime when it gets super warm, if that layer of water between your board or skis and the snow gets too thick, it gets sticky. You, you, you know, that's when you get you. that suction cuppy kind of feel. If you get, we'll get into spring skiing in, so, a, in yeah, a little bit, but sure. so, okay. So, so what are some of those advances in, in, the applying of the wax or, or you, you mentioned something about advancements. It, talk to me a little bit about that. So there's a couple of things. Uh, basic ski waxing does a couple of things for your equipment. Even if you're the most casual of skier, it will protect and uh, it will lengthen the life of your equipment by being protected. It seals the pores of the base of the ski. Uh, so when you think about the base of a ski, it looks fairly hard, but it's extremely porous. It's a softer mm -hmm. material, which you might have learned if you have ever hit a rock or had a core shot. <laughs> yep. So the, the base material of the ski is porous. And to keep that ski lubricated and protected, it's kind of like the skin on your body. You want to have some lubrication, some moisturizer. So a ski that's well lubricated and well protected is going to last longer. It's going to go through less uh, variation in, in shape. If you think about mm -hmm. freezing and freezing, and heating, mm -hmm. heat, cool cycles, uh, PTEX or the base of a ski can contract and expand over time. So the more you maintain the moisture and the, and the lubrication in that ski, the longer the product's going to last. So waxing as a general rule is kind of like keeping your skin lubricated. You want to make sure your skis are protected. When you move beyond the basics 
and you start talking about the performance aspects of wax, it is all about optimizing the glide for a given condition. And that's where the different temperature ranges of performance waxes come in. So we would talk about a basic base prep wax to protect the base of the ski that you would use all the time. And that's a relatively inexpensive proposition. And most shops have that as a, as a basic service. And when you move to a performance glide, when you want your skis to be the fastest of your competition, you're actually a junior ski racer or a competition level athlete, there are different additives and different hardnesses of waxes that optimize that water layer between the ski and the snow, depending on the consistency of the snow, whether it's natural snow or man-made, whether it's aggressive snow or um, reconditioned, you know, groomed a bunch of times and refrozen. And then the air temperature that affects that top layer of snow is also a, a huge contributing factor as to which temperature range of wax. So you can get into it at a micro level, but you can also keep it very simple. So, so what you're telling me is that the person who's waxing Michaela's skis at the top of Superstar has like multiple PhDs in everything. They probably not only have multiple PhDs, but they're also testing the snow the morning of the event with the one caveat that the, the snow on the Killington Superstar World Cup is usually pretty firm, very hard injected. It's yep. basically like a sheet of ice. Oh. So the edge treatment is as important, if not more so, for those technical events like slalom and giant slalom. But where the ski glide is really important and the snow texture is more like normal winter snow, that's where the wax has a huge differentiating uh, ability. Okay, so let's let's take a step back. We have tuning at the most basic level prolongs the life of a ski. That makes complete sense. You've you've mentioned that the base is porous. Uh, we use the term called P-TEX. So basically, the, the the base of a ski is made out of P-TEX. Polyurethane. Yep. Polyurethane. Okay, so, and that is porous. So, and that makes sense because it can accept wax. It, it will, the, the wax will, to use layman terms, sort of seep into the, the P-TEX, and that's Absolutely. why it sticks. So we're prolonging the life of a ski at, at the most basic level. So we've talked wax. You just hinted at it. We're, we're talking edges now. So... I'm going to throw out a term bevel to, to explain to the listeners what, what, what a bevel might be. Sure. If you've ever tuned your own skis um, back, you know, 20 years ago when the Rousey 4S was the best selling ski on the, the market, green, the green ski, everybody had one. Sure. The waist width and the overall shape of those skis was barely 60 millimeters underfoot, 60 to 62, whatever the, the waist width was. Um, so those skis inherently and the materials being used at the time weren't as stiff torsionally as the modern skis that we have now using materials like carbon fiber and basalt and the different layers make the skis much more stiff to twist. So those older skis, if you tune skis yourself in the basement, you might've taken a flat file and just dragged it down the ski to make sure you were getting some edge material on the file because the biggest drawback on a ski would be if the base and the edges are in the wrong uh, dimension. So basically, if your base high, which when you put the ski on, the, we're talking about the ski being upside down in a vice when you're okay. tuning a pair of skis. Okay. If the ski is base high, it's going to feel very loose. It's going to feel drifty when you're sliding on the <laughs> snow because the edges are elevated versus the base. So it's almost concave. It's con or, or convex. Convex. Yep, so if you look at the so base. yeah, that, that makes sense. Like it would be all squirrely because because yep. because there's no edges touching. The Correct. Snow. Okay. So if the ski is base low or or edge high, basically that means it's railed. So when you flip the ski onto the snow, the base material is not touching the snow as heavily as the edges are. So that railed experience uh, makes the skis feel extreme, like railroad tracks. You can't get the ski to slide sideways. It feels too sharp. So I, I snowboard quite a bit and you get a lot of snowboards that are, are rail high is the term you use yep. and it. And it gets really like uh, hard to convey in audio, but like very tight. Uh, tight. They, yeah, 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 yeah. You can't get this. You can't get can't glide you flat. Can't break, easy. You yeah. can't break free side to side. If you if you watch skiing on TV, uh, if you ever watch World Cup downhill on TV, 
um, which you have to watch on TV because we don't get downhill at Killington. We no. get tech events. Yep. But if you watch downhill in the gliding sections and you look at the skier's feet, it almost looks like the skis are drifting from side to side. And that is, that's the feature of glide that really lets you see what edge bevel can do because speed skiers use skis with, I've, I'll use the term relief rather than bevel. So okay. the, the base is on the snow, but the edges have relief from the snow so that you can get the ski away from you a little bit before the edge of the ski connects or hooks up. So there's a, there's a movie, a, t- a Tom Cruise great movie out there called Days of Thunder. And he, he talks about being loose and fast and on the edge of out of control. Absolutely. And, and, and so in ski racing, that's what you're kind of looking for. It's just a little a little place so that it's it's extra fast. In speed events. And in the, speed so events. So in technical events where you watch Michaela Schifrin coming down Superstar, if you watch that and analyze it on TV, it looks like she's going from arc to arc. There's really virtually no time she spends on the base of the ski. It's it's on one edge, and then there's transition, and she engages the next edge, and the ski is almost constantly on its edges, working its way down in a pure carve. So when you ride the chairlift and you see those super clean lines of somebody having arced down the hill, that's someone who's spending most of their time on the edge. Whereas if you go and look at a powder field or a bump field, you'll probably see the evidence from the tracks of snow being thrown off the side of the ski from a partial skid. There's not a right or a wrong way to ski unless you're trying to compete in the World Cup where you don't want to be skidding in a tech event and you don't want to be too edgy in a downhill. So the variation of that relief, the base bevel is basically the relief from the snow. Um, There are different views about how much bevel is the right amount of bevel. We, we, I've heard terms like flat or one degree, two degree, three degree. We're, that's the slightest little bit of relief that you're talking about. Correct. So if you're, a, if you're an average skier that doesn't ski a lot, uh, you want to make sure that the skis give you confidence, but at the same time, you can skid them or carve them. You can progress from one to the other. So a safe starting point is around a degree of base edge bevel. That's and the reason I use the term base edge bevel is that the edge, the edge of the ski has two sides to it. It's a a dimension that's even with the base and the vertical dimension that goes up with the sidewall. So the base edge bevel is simply the dynamic of the shape of that edge where the base of the PTEX meets the metal of the edge. Mm -hmm. So a good starting point is usually about a degree. You'll find some technical skiers that use significantly less bevel. And what that does is it allows the ski to connect and hook up sooner rather than more edge bevel that would allow the ski to feel looser. Hmm. So sometimes people might performance tune for a super G or a downhill ski with a degree to a degree and a half of base edge bevel because at 60 or 70 miles an hour, they want the ski to get further away from their body before that edge starts to engage. Otherwise, it hooks up too soon and they might high side in a circumstance where they want to be able to to get the ski to a certain place to resist the forces they're going. What would you recommend just the average skier who comes to Killington maybe it's an icon skier who who has his five or seven days of killing. What would you recommend their bevel be? It depends on their preference as a skier. Skiers can go to any of the, the shops in Killington that have tuning expertise. They'll probably be asked a few questions by the technician about their skiing style and the equipment that they're on, and they will make a recommendation that might be different from one person to the other. So I can't really give you one go-to answer, but a starting point for base bevel is that you never want a railed ski and you always want a little bit of relief on that base edge. The best way to do that is to see a shop that can condition the base with a tuning machine to make sure that the base edge of the ski and the base of the ski are flat to begin with. And then, so they'll use a stone grinder that will put a structure into the base that helps absorb wax. But at the same time, they will grind the edges with usually a diamond disc as a separate process that puts a little calculated relief into that base edge. So so ultimately, 
go to a, a qualified shop and talk to the technician behind the counter. Say, hey, listen, you know, I, I like to ski blue squares. I don't ski that fast or, you know, I'm ripping bumps, which would be a different tune. Or, you know, I like fast groomers down high line and just like to go as fast as possible. Okay, so we, we talk to the technician. Now, behind that technician, and I, you, you alluded to it just then, are these gigantic machines, right? Absolutely. And, and there's there's water spraying and there's it's loud. And, and so those machines, as you, as you see them... Sp- feed the ski through is more or less just flattening the base. And that, that's what we talked about in the beginning, correct? It's doing a couple of things. Primarily, it's flattening the base. But in conjunction with that, the stone grinding component of those tuning machines will grind a pattern. They'll actually cut a pattern into the base of the ski, depending on the region, the location, the shop, and the conditions that the skier is going to be uh, skiing in. It might need a different pattern on the base to create that layer of water most okay. efficiently okay so. so we're coming full circle so yep. and that's called structure correct Correct. and yep. sometimes you can see the structure like you, you talked about that pattern sometimes sometimes it's so small you wouldn't even know it's there correct and then we're getting into springtime killington's famous for his spring skiing you would want probably a more aggressive structure yeah or a more open um, open okay. and when you use the term aggressive it, it can look aggressive but you still want it to have clean edges. You don't want it to make the ski feel as though it's tracking without being able to drift. So even a pattern that you can see when it's executed properly is still going to allow the ski to slide three-dimensionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, some patterns for wetter, snow, spring conditions, you can see a pattern that almost can look like a herringbone in yep. the base of the ski. Yep. That creates more space to evacuate the water in that layer between the ski and the snow so it glides in those wetter conditions. You're basically saying it's, it's they're like treads on a tire. Very much like treads on a tire. Interesting. Yep. And it would just push away the water, especially in like slushy springtime superstar bumps. It may, it may not push the water away. That's what the wax helps to do. But okay. it does create channels for evacuation so the water can naturally... Um, make its way off the ski. And and you would probably recommend a springtime kind of wax. What what constitutes a, a warm weather wax? So waxes, when we talk about the basic, like a base prep wax that you'd put in your skis to protect them, that's a usually a mid-temperature, mid-hardness wax. When we talk about ultra-cold weather or ultra-warm, like spring weather, that's where you'll find softer waxes in the springtime and harder waxes in the winter. So it's varying the ability for that layer of water to be created. The warmer weather wax is softer, it's easier to work with, and it usually impregnates the ski deeper than a harder wax. Um, it uses a lower iron temperature as well. So when well, hold on, when you say iron, oh, you mean like a like a something to heat the wax correct. to put on the on the ski? Okay, correct. So okay. for for application of the wax onto the ski, you need to heat the wax to a melting point so that it will melt into the pores of the base. It also, when done properly, it's heating the base as well, so those pores open up. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a critical balance between not overheating the base and burning it, but you want it warm enough so that it will accept the wax properly. So a a higher iron temperature for application, this isn't a household iron, it's usually a digital uh, it's usually a digital iron that maintains temperature well across the entire metal plate. That will help heat the base and allow the wax to melt into the ski. As we talked about temperatures, the colder waxes need more heat to melt onto the ski and also to melt into the ski. So for springtime, the wax is likely to be very soft. Um, it will give really good glide in very wet snow. And it's easy to work with. It's easy to scrape. It's easy to brush out of the ski. So myself, as a 16-year-old snowboard racer, I would borrow my mom's clothing iron, crank it to high, smoke fills the garage, and I would just, I mean, burn the ever-loving snot out of the wax into the snowboard. You're telling me I wasn't doing it exactly right. Well, you might have been getting the job done. There are, <laughs> there are more efficient ways. Okay. Okay. So we're, we're making our way through the tune. So you, you go talk to your technician. You, you discuss your skiing style or ability or, or what you like to do. He can, he can suggest bevels. And then, you know, the, the temperature, the, you know, it's going to be warm. So he, the technician will put on a warmer weather wax and a, he puts on the wax. And now the process of removing the wax sounds counterintuitive, but, but what are we doing there? So the the base of the ski is the surface that 
allows the most efficient glide. The wax is a propellant, if you will. It helps in the glide, and it's impregnated into the base of the ski. So if you have a layer of wax that is above the base of the ski, the skis are going to be slow. You can't glide on wax alone. Mm-hmm. You have to glide on the PTEX with the assistance of the wax that's melted into the base. So when you apply wax and you melt it in, there's usually a pretty thick sheen of uh, residue or extra wax on the base. So to get the ski prepared for skiing, you have to scrape off the excess so you're back down to the PTEX, and the only wax that exists on the ski is what's inside the base. And you can use a scraper, a plastic scraper, that won't damage the structure of the base. Mm -hmm. So you scrape the wax off as a first step. And depending on how elaborate or how high of a performance you're looking for, you can then move to a brush, an actual nylon um, or a horsehair brush that they have different densities and different thicknesses to work with the different hardnesses of waxes. And you can actually brush out the wax so that even those fine shapes that you see in the pattern of the ski are still exposed, but the PTEX itself, the pores of the PTEX, are fully impregnated with wax. Wow. So you ultimately, you're trying to take off as much excess wax as possible, and you're really relying on just that microscopic layer between the PTEX or the wax touching the PTEX. Correct. And how long does like a good wax last? Well, that's the difference between inexpensive or less complicated waxes that are really easy to work with. There are certain products that have a very short lifespan once they're gliding on snow and other products that are more advanced, if you will, that can last all day or a couple of days if you if you apply it properly and you're skiing. It depends on how many runs you're skiing sure, a day sure. too. So if you're, if you're skiing bell to bell from first run till closing in Killington where it goes from buffed groomers in the morning to firm, firm conditions in the yeah, afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we not, frozen granular, let's the, say. Yeah. Uh, the abrasiveness of sure. the snow changes throughout the day. So the more abrasive the snow, the that more likely sense. it is to wear the wax that is in the ski out. So it's really important to have that base layer all the way in so that even as that wax of the day, we would call it the temperature wax that you wax for a given day for glide, as that wears out, you still have protection in the base of the ski. So that's, that's uh, I, I guess I never really thought about that. Like uh, the conditions today are probably a little frozen granular, a little firm, you know, tiny, tiny balls of ice. And that's going to be a lot more rough on yep. the ski. And, and that's probably rip off, not rip off, but burn off or, or melt away wax as you're skiing because of the friction in the water. And the... Now, if someone wanted to get into this at home, what, what would be the basic like setup, like what at, at minimal, what do you need to do this at home? So to back up a little bit, yeah. as we mentioned before, wax can be as simple as you want or as complicated as you want to make it because you can, it's kind of like golf. You can go and swing a club and get through the course and go home and not think about it. Yeah. And I've also met friends that are golfers that they can't think of anything except for that swing and how they're <laughs> going to improve, you know? So um, on the wax side of things, the basic solution that every skier should have is a universal easy wipe on wax that's the solution for those days where you're out skiing the temperature changes say it's warm weather and it went from a point where your skis were gliding fine to now the sun's out the snow's getting wetter and you go from shade to sunshine and when you hit that sunshine snow it's you're almost stopping dead so swix makes a product called f4 it looks like a men in speed stick deodorant can And it's good for all temperatures. It doesn't go deeply into the ski, but it's a liquid application that's super easy to use. You wipe it on like on deodorant. So, so not all waxes need need an iron. Correct. In, oh, okay. Correct. So to back to so as far as doing it yourself, everyone that skis more than a couple times a year should be familiar with the facts that fact that wax is good and that yep. it's easy to apply when you need it in a pinch. So that's. The universal waxes. There's a rub-on wax that you can actually, it looks like something you would melt on with an iron, but it comes in a plastic tin Hmm. with a cork on the back. So you wipe it on the ski like a crayon, and then you use the the cork on the backside of the plastic container, and that creates the heat to push it that down. Helps melt it into okay, the so that creates the friction. So that's and that friction. gets it into the exactly. into the into the the, the structure. Yep. Okay. So that's super easy, and it's it's extremely minimal. It requires very little in the way of tools or preparation or anything like that. If you want to set up a tuning room in your ski house or at your home or in your garage. Uh, there's a few items that you're going to need. A solution for vice, something to hold the skis well, 
less for the application of the wax and more for the scraping Scraping. because something has to hold the skis from sliding when it's on the table. Makes sense. Um, A good iron, a good actual ski waxing iron that will maintain temperature consistently and it'll last you a long time. So my mom's iron is not the way to go. You could use it, but you're going to ruin it. (laughs) Your mom's probably going to be ticked off. She was. She was 100% ticked off. And what you'll find as well is a lot of the irons that you get for home use they have a thermostat in them, and when you turn them to a certain temperature, they heat to that temperature, and then the temp- thermostat shuts off, and it cools down, oh. and then it kicks at a certain temperature and warms back up. So you're always fighting the iron for that optimal temperature. A slightly, a much better solution, but a more expensive solution, is a digital iron that has digital management of sensors so that the entire heat plate, you set it at 150 degrees Celsius, if that's the recommended temperature, yep. And it stays there throughout the plate. So a good iron and then a collection of wax that will cover the temperature ranges you're sure. going to be skiing in. And yep. Swix makes it super easy because the air temperature for the given wax is printed on the top of every wax yep. container, um, as well as the recommended iron temp. So you can actually easily see how that works. And we color code the waxes too. Swix has color coding. Like you said, the yeah. blue is for colder. Yeah, yeah. Red and purple are for slightly warmer. Yellow's the warmest. So it's very easy. So we have a vice to hold the ski. We have a digital iron. Just spend the extra money because it's well worth it. You got a, a range of waxes for all types of uh, temperatures. Probably need a scraper, a file, and maybe some guides. Well, you need a scraper, and you also may want to use a brush, like yep. I was saying before, because okay. the scraper gets the bulk of the wax off, but there may be a little residue that mm-hmm. that brush really cleans out the base. When you're talking about files and guides, that's a different animal. So yeah. if you're interested in just waxing, which is a very easy to start, um, that those are the tools you need, and that's pretty much all. I'm going to stop you right there, Meg. We'll talk. We'll leave edging and guides and and all that jazz uh, for another podcast. I I, I read someplace, or actually, it's a, it's a friend's father, Bill Ellis, once told me the best thing you can do for your skis, or at least the most minimal thing you can do for your skis, is just wipe them down dry when you're done skiing. Is there is there any other little just the most basic tip you could give someone to to help to help their skis? For sure, if you want to maximize the life of your equipment. Wiping them down after a day of skiing is a great idea. And then just visually taking a look at the material, the base, the bindings, make sure everything's in order. It's it's not any different from um, an equipment standpoint than a car. If you're driving a car, you want to make sure, sure your, your equipment is well-prepared and well-maintained. So if you look at the base of the ski and it looks dry, if it looks like you can see Uh, that it's dried out. It has white lines, visible white lines in it versus the color of the base or the black of the P-TEX, depending on if it's a colored base or not. Um, You want to make sure you get a wax coat into those. That makes, that makes sense. So if you, if you're noticing, you know, basically if your base looks dry, probably time to wax. Absolutely. Now, we're skiing late into June, hopefully this year on Superstar. There's a ton of snow. What do you do to store your skis for summer? So this is another service that a lot of shops can offer, but mm-hmm. it, it is also something you could do at home if you had the tools, the iron, the wax, yep. and what have you. Your skis are going to go into storage for the summer. You want the base to be protected just the same way it would for wintertime, but you don't have to remove the excess. So if you put a nice coat of what we would call a base prep wax into the ski, you can put it on a little thicker for mm-hmm. the summer storage, and then you don't have to scrape until the fall. You leave that excess residue. And some people even make sure that it drips onto the edge because it protects the metal of the edge from oxidization. Sure. Or oxidation. Yeah. Is that oxidization or oxidation? You're asking the wrong guy. Uh, we'd have to listen. Uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll we look, could Google it. <laughs> I'm sure someone will look it up for us. So you just don't shove them in the back of the garage and pick them up in, in November, right? So you're going to coat the bottom of the ski heavy with wax maybe drape it over the or uh, melt it over the edges to you know so they so they don't get rusty but i mean Absolutely. flat out yep. and then and then you scrape it in the in the fall and you're you're one step ahead correct and some shops will offer a summer summerization or a summer prep uh, service yep. and that is basically they'll make sure that they're before you put them into summer storage it's good to have a, a verification that they're in good shape to begin with sure. so they may offer uh, tune up so the skis you know that the yep. the edges are in the right sh- shape and the base is clean and then they'll put that larger that thicker coat of wax on and storm for the summer 
All right, Mike Aker, we've, we've learned what to do with the skis at the end of the season. Just don't shove them in your garage. Get them tuned up. Get them looked at. Treat them like, a, like, like your car. You're, you're strapping these things to your feet and hurling yourself down the mountain. You want to make sure everything is good, good working order. Um, let's, let's have some fun here, Mike. What's your favorite trail at Killington? You know, there's a variety of trails that I would put on my top 10 list, depending on the day and the conditions. There's something about getting off the K1 gondola and skiing Cascade on a beautiful buff morning and sure. then hopping on the canyon chair and cruising over to East Fall. Um, superstar. And then, I mean, the, there's so many mountains at Killington alone, not to mention the number of trails. So it could be anything from Ovation and Superstar to Wildfire and Bear Claw. But, a lot, uh, lot of black diamonds. But there's a lot of good pitch and a lot of great, whether you're looking for groomers or unmaintained bumps and trees, you know, that's that's the beauty of Killington. So uh, I never really get sick of it, but I also can't say I've got one favorite trail. I, I know there are plenty of people out there that spend 80% of their time on one trail, and yeah. a lot of those people are bump skiers on yeah. outer limits. Sure, sure. But I'm, I'm It's firing about, right now, too, I think. That's what I've heard. Yeah. I'm more about the variety. I totally get it. I, I'm a, I'm a peaked Greek guy. I like long cruisers, but uh, give me the steeps as well. Um, what's your go-to restaurant on the access road? Oh, that's another hard one because I've been around long enough that at one point it was Powderhounds and, okay. <laughs> so, and Mother Shapiro's. Sure. But, uh, but at the same time, right now, you know, the Lookout and Jack's are both great. Yep. Foundry's a different experience, and that's definitely a place I like to take people when they're in town from points far away. Yep. Um, so there's great variety in food and beverage. Yeah, in your line of work, I suppose you probably wine and dine quite a bit up and down the access road. On occasion, it's... Yep. Uh, it's something that we do get to do as uh, part of the business. Yeah, sometimes. Okay. Uh, last question, and I'm and I'm I'm changing this question this episode. So you're on the old Killington double chair, the old one that took 45 minutes to get to the top or something like that, and you can ride it with anyone living or dead, and they have to answer any question you give them. Who are you getting on the chair with? Wow, that one's not easy, but. It would probably have to be my my mom and dad if it were a triple, but sure. it's only a double. So if it's only a double and I can only pick one person, I'd probably want to take a chairlift ride with Ingemar Stenmark. Interesting. Nice. Because I'd like to ask him what he feels about uh, Michaela. Very true. That'd be a good answer, right? Oh, yep. All right. Okay, cool. Mike, thank you for taking time out of your busy day. Thank you for talking about ski wax and bevels and 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 how to get a proper tune and and what you need to maybe get started at home thank you very much for taking the time and we really appreciate it it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much we're going to put a bow on this podcast like we always do talking to president and general manager of killington and pico resorts mike salamano mike welcome back to the podcast thanks so much mike uh just last week a big deal for the Killington uh, area and the community. Uh, the TIF was passed, or maybe I'm, I'm not probably not even saying it right. I'm just going to paraphrase. There's going to be a village here at Killington. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. You've know, been waiting for a long time, and, um, you know, we weren't sure how the vote would go, right? And I think you probably know, but the way it works in these towns is the only residents can vote. So 80% of the taxpayers are second homeowners or businesses like us. We don't get to vote, right? So there's only about a thousand taxpayers. But uh, you know, when we tried to repeal, we repealed the option tax a couple of years ago and made a pretty good push for that. And uh, I think we made that by seven votes. So this one, <laughs> this one, we got seventy-five percent of the residents oh. to vote vote for it. So that's really, a, you know, I think a great accomplishment and shows that uh, people are kind of believing in what we're we're talking about. I've 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 had some dinner with some people who, who live on the access road owned businesses. And, uh, I think the overwhelming majority was, and to the votes point, 75%, um, are, are for it. And I think it's going to be wonderful for the community. Yeah. To me, it just seems like the next evolution, right? I think, you know, we'd be kidding ourselves to say over the next couple of years, there's not going to be parts that are inconvenient, right? Like putting a new K1 lodge in at times that wasn't convenient for everyone. But, you know, I think the I feel really great, you know, that group's here at Great Golf, the group doing the development. They're here this week. We were just talking through a bunch of things. They get it. They want to, you know, make sure that the experience is great. So I think I think we'll end up, it'll really be great moving forward. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of podcasts earlier, Michael Snade was on, and he, you know, he reiterated just that. He, he made sure that, you know, the, the user experience, the skier experience won't be disrupted at all or, or at, at very minimal levels while they, they build this village. 
Right. I mean, that's the goal, right? And I think they get it. And, you know, we're trying to build, do what's right for the future and trying to make sure it works. And I think if it's successful, it'll be, I think even you don't need to, the key is going to be if we have a successful village, you don't need to own a home in the village for it to be something you enjoy, right? If we have enough, we just spent a whole bunch of time talking through what are the amenities? What are the things? I mean, they get it. They need to make sure there's a lot of cool things to do. And I think they really get that part of it. Yeah. He, he, he spoke to like entertainment in the, in the village square or whatever it may end up being, but like, there's going to be, you know, a stage for, for concerts and stuff like that. So it's, it's going to be a destination uh, for everybody, not just the people that live there. Right. And I think most people know Killington's not exactly like the quaint, quiet, like Vermont vacation, right? Like I'm, you know, our I'm generally our customers want some action. They want things happening. And I think, you know, so it's animation, it's making it. So I think it's going to, when it's, you know, who knows, it'll be a long time before it's fully done. But I think the part in Snowshed and Ramshead, which is most of the village build out, I think when people are done, it's sort of like K1. Some people are going to go, oh, I wish I liked the old building, you know. But, I mean, you know, it's it's mobbed, so obviously enough people enjoy it. I'd like to meet those few people who like the old building versus the new building. But that's a, that's another to topic. K- and just go to Facebook locals and <laughs> okay, okay. they're all talking about the carpet. Oh, for crying out. Oh, for crying. Anyway, uh, so do you have any inside scoop? Like when, when does the first shovel go into the ground? Well, uh, the official closing on the property is going to be mid-April. There's a couple of things that happened before then, but it looks like everything's good. And then uh, we're they're going to start doing some remote parking down below the Mountain Inn. We'll probably, you know, that'll start getting built out. And then the town's going to do some work at the bottom of the road, uh, taking out that hump. You yep. know, when you first come out by uh, Route 4 and Killington Road, they're going to uh, work on that. So that's this year. And then you know, as we go into next year, a lot more things happen. So it's, you know, it's going to start, the timeline's pretty quick. Okay. So beginning of 2024, I can't believe I'm saying that, is is when maybe we'll start to see some action around Snowshed and Ramshead? Right. Exactly. Okay. okay. As of recording, uh, yesterday was the first day of spring, and I noticed that uh, the the Superstar Glacier is uh, have been has been completed. Like, do we know how much snow is up there? You know, I didn't ask for a count, but it's a lot. You're skiing, you know, people are, if you're riding a lift, people are skiing over you again. So yeah. we, I think we did a pretty decent job on that. And we, you know, obviously we're making snow for the last couple of days. And I think every other resort stopped like a month and a half ago. So we, you know, we've been really pushing hard. Is there, is there a way to measure how much snow? I mean, it, there is a ton of snow. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, we, this year, uh, we've done a bunch of work on this, not specifically for Superstar, but around the rest of the mountain. We did LIDAR and mapped out the whole, uh, the whole resort. So we have a, a 3D model of the resort. And now we have radar and a couple groomers where we can go up and down a trail and, and it actually can measure how much snow is underneath. That's wild. So it's like almost like sonar or, or radar, I guess, yeah. the same thing. Uh, so it, it kind of pings and, and you can tell the depth of like, and, and, right. it, and it maps it out. Yeah, so we're using that, like, specifically. We were just looking at maps the other day and take a trail like Cascade. They they um, do it, and it's based on color, but it'll show it's, like, here's a half an inch of snow or a half a foot of snow to five feet of snow. Huh. And you go up, and you, it's heat map, and you can see. And, and so it's really been great for us because we can either decide to send the groomer out and move snow around from where we have more than we need to where we don't have enough or we can target our snowmaking a little better. In the old days, we would say, hey, we need snow on Cascade, and they'd have to go light up 50 guns, right? Well, now what they did is they maybe put on 30 guns there, and they didn't in the area that they can see we have enough snow. We can take that capacity at the same time and move it somewhere else in the mountain. So it's more efficient, and I think you know the ultimate goal would be as we melt out, if we get better at it, we're not seeing huge piles in certain spots, right? Because it's much, you'd, in a perfect world, you'd rather have three or four feet everywhere than 10 feet and a foot, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think um, that's been a pretty big game changer for the snowmaking and grooming team this year. I, I have to imagine, that's fascinating. So like, I'm just thinking about it right now. Like, you know, you come up to Ski Superstar in, you know, May, and you look out, say, in the in the canyon, you see like a big patch on Dipper that, and you're like, why is there a, so now you're telling me that you know through this radar that you're going to have just a more even uh even swath of snow and and as you said meltout will be hopefully uniform and and allow people to ski longer yeah and the other problem we've had in the past is sometimes you know we have so many trails here we're not sending people out to measure sometimes we would go with a stick and and try to figure out a trail but if you take a, a trail like say dipper you know double dipper um 
a lot of times we wouldn't know until we hit dirt, right? All of a sudden the groomer's grooming and you hit dirt. And the worst thing we can do is hit dirt because then they drag dirt around the trail, yeah. right? So in a perfect world, we'd go over it, know where the weak spots are, move the snow at night, and then kind of keep it much more even. So that, that's really cool. That's, that's really fascinating. That's really cool. Uh, I, dig, I dig that kind of in, inside information. Like you, you would never think about using, or I would never think of using radar to like map out where the deep, deep spots are on trails and thin spots. And I mean, you're, you're saving energy by doing it. You're, you're creating a better product for everybody. It's a win-win all, all, all across the board. Yeah. It's pretty amazing too, is the cats that have it. If they're like readjusting, you can see like, Oh, here's a yellow spot. That means you only have a foot and a half. Here's a blue spot. You can see on their screen as they're grooming and pushing the Wild. the blue, the yellow's turning blue, like on the screen, which shows that like they've just change the depth of that trail so I, I smell a video coming out next winter we're, yeah, we're, we're gonna yeah. get the inside scoop on all this now we should do that that's pretty cool that uh, we can also use it i mean some of the same technology we're using in the summer for mountain biking really? and other different things of just you know i mean they use already use that for building and a lot of that stuff to okay. figure out depths and elevations and things so. interesting interesting well I, I maybe it's a two-part series summer and winter um but we're in spring and and it's it's a really special time around the resort you know it's it ju it just seems more relaxed you know you're not all bundled up uh sunshine you know hopefully more than not and and skiing for me at least is just maybe just that little bit more enjoyable because you're not you're not layered up to the nines you know what do you look forward to uh in spring Pretty much the same thing, you know, I mean, it's finding enough time to get out because, you know, it's like middle of winter, you don't see the sun that much. And all of a sudden, you know, you get a couple of days like this where you're like, wow, you hit start hitting 30, 40 degrees and, you know, the snow is still really nice and that part's pretty great. So, you know, I think the key for me is just making sure I find enough time to get out and this time, you know, it becomes a lot of planning or just trying to get some time out of here too, right? Yeah. Trying to get away from the resort a little bit. Sure. It's been so busy. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh. I, I would imagine with the village going, you know, being approved and all that working forward, you, your time on the hill is probably limited. But uh, you, you let me know when you when you want to go out. I'll, I'll get up here and we'll we'll go make some turns together. Sounds like a plan. Mike, as always, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, we'll talk in a couple of weeks. Great to be here. Thanks. See you all on the hill. See ya. Thank you to all our guests for joining me on the Killington Download podcast. If you have a particular guest you'd like us to interview, drop that name in the comments section. Also, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review. It helps us out a bunch. As always, make sure to follow Killington on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I have links to all that and the Killington app in the show notes below. I'm Justin Cash. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at The Beast.